to be seated. So about uh, three or four times a year, Dwayne lets me out of my cage and lets me preach. So I'm here. It's been a while since I've seen daylight, and uh, it's nice. But I'm really excited to be here with you guys. Ben and I talked about a month ago uh, as we were preparing, um, and we decided to do the book of 1 John together. And he had just read it. I was, I'm actually in the Old Testament in my read-through, and he had just read the book. And, and so I didn't actually look at the passage till I, a group of us just went to Israel and uh, I didn't look at the passage, and I was rooming with, uh, with a deputy who went with us, uh, and I read the chapter I had, and I'm like, this sucks. <laughs> I got like the hardest chapter. And then I, I read my chapter, and then I read the whole book uh, a couple times, and I'm like, oh, okay, it's not so bad. But today, we're going to do a little shift, because I came home, I listened to what Ben uh, preached in chapter 1 and 2, and I'm going to begin to shift his message just a little bit, at, because I think this is what's happening in chapter 3. 1 and 2 are setting up 3, 4, and 5, um, and so I'm going to begin to present this shift. Let me summarize Ben's thoughts real quick, just really quick. Ben basically was telling you that because we live in the light and so forth, we, are, uh, we no longer have to um, perform to be accepted by Jesus, to be accepted by God. And, uh, and we no longer have to do things. We are not in a religion of doing. We are not in a religion where you have to do X, Y, and Z, and then you're in the graces of God. This is the summation of what Ben was saying, what I believe First John uh, 1 and 2 and even 3 when we get into it say. But it's interesting, oftentimes I believe Christians begin to look at that and go, okay, I can do anything I want to do. But there's actually this delicate balance, and this is what chapter 3 begins to explain. It's actually talked about a little bit in 1 and 2 as well, but there's a balance that takes place that allows us to live in this awesome freedom of grace, but there is actually something expected of us in relationship with God. It's not, we're not just off scot-free. And I'm going to begin to make this change, but you've got to do it very well in your heart. You've got to make this change very succinct in your heart. You have to understand why you're doing something. You have to understand your motive. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's actually, you get me for three weeks. So if you don't like me today, wait till next week and the, and the week after, because it's going to get really good. I, I just pray you'll come back. If there's like six of us in three weeks... Dwayne will never ask me to be, preach again. It will be freedom for me, but you six people will be awesome. I mean, you guys will get it, okay? All right, so this is what we're going to do, and um, there's a lot of material to cover. I was going to show you some Israel, because that's what Dwayne normally does. He has his little nerdy laser pointer, and he points to maps and stuff. We're not doing that this week. Come back next week. I'll show you some cool pictures. There's just a little bit too much to discuss today, so let's jump right in. First John... Uh, is the book we're in. We're in chapter 3 today. The text will be on there, but I pray if you have your scripture, open it, practice. It's toward the end of your book, toward the end of your Bible, uh, you know, if you don't have a wacky version. So, and what I want to do, we're going to dive right into chapter 3. We're going to get right into this, but I want to note a couple things about the book of 1 John. First of all, we all believe John wrote the book, okay? It's called First John, but actually, in reality, they don't know who wrote this book, okay? 
So I am one of those who believes it's John. I've actually never met a credible scholar who doesn't believe that John wrote this book. The same John that wrote John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, we believe it's the same dude. All right? But one other interesting thing about this book is that this book has no audience identified. There's only three books in the New Testament where the audience is not identified in a letter form. That is the book of Hebrews, the book of Ephesians, and the book of 1 John. I actually find that very significant. And the reason I find that significant in both Ephesians, Hebrews, and 1 John, I believe these are letters that all Christians should apply uh, across, across the board, universally. I don't, I think oftentimes we'll read New Testament books, and he's actually writing to a very specific group of people for a very specific reason, and we try to apply those to us. And if you read something in context, you realize that doesn't work, right? And uh, just a quick illustration, like, um, you know, when, when you're being addressed specifically, there's certain things you need to do that other people may not have to do. That's not their thing. But in Ephesians, Hebrews, and 1 John, he's addressing all of the church. There is no particular audience in his letter. He wants us to all pay attention to these five chapters, okay? All right, so let's begin. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Catch that, children of God. He just called us children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, when the Messiah appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves, there's a doing, just as He is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen Him or known Him. So notice the text here in John is not this text of grace. It is the text, but notice here he's basically like, hey, dude, if you keep on sinning, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong. And let's talk about what sinning is. Now, it's interesting. How most of us today believe in sin is we believe you do a particular action and it's either a sin or it's not a sin. So we, we rate our actions, right? Like, um, you know, like, uh, you know, when I'm tired of talking to people, you know, I'll act like I'm busy. Um, I, I know I'm the only one who does that. So, but there's days where I'm just, I'm, I'm really just tired of talking to people. And, uh, and I just, you know, and I, and I'm like, yeah, I'm just too busy to talk, you know, right now. I just can't talk, you know, or I ignore the phone call that we would all like, most of us, that's a sin. That's sinful. But really, when John is talking about sin, he's talking about our attitude, what we do on a consistent basis. It's what we do in our day in and day out. It's who we live for. That's really what he's getting at in this text. This is how you can reconcile the text of chapter 3 to what Ben was talking about in 1 and 2, where we live in grace, and it's because of that grace we live in the light. It's awesome. We don't have to perform both can both be true, and that's what we're going to talk about today. 
All right? Now, what is sin? What is the word sin? If someone were to come to you and say, when you say sin, what do you mean? And I love, uh, there's uh, in... in um, we, uh, in Bible college, uh, in theology, you have to define this like on week one, you have to define sin. And I remember the first time it was defined for me, I, that's not what I thought. Sin, I just think of as bad things you do. Okay, that's what I thought, right? You know, I grew up in Texas. If you drank alcohol, you were a sinner. That was a sin. You didn't drink alcohol, right? You didn't play Dungeons and Dragons because we all know that was worshiping, you know, witchcraft. You know, all kinds of interesting sins we had in Texas, okay? Now, nowadays, I, I, I drink a little bit of alcohol, and I'm, I'm good with it. Okay, sin, sin is a violation of God's purpose. That's what sin is. Sin is a willful violation of God's design and purpose. It's that simple. When the, the writers, uh, when John was writing this, everybody had that concept. It's a violation of God's intent. It's a violation of God's purpose. You cannot define what is right and wrong until you define who the definer is. Because you need to know what his intent is, right? If I put a birthday cake on the table and my kids surround it, but they know the birthday cake's actually for a party, it's intended for a party in three days that they're not involved in, and they eat the birthday cake, they have sinned. But if they know that the intent of the birthday cake is for their enjoyment because it's their birthday and they eat it, then they have delighted in goodness. Interesting, same action, same exact action, different consequence, different ramification. Do you get it? So what First John is basically saying is you have to know the purpose and intent of something in order to know whether it's sinful or not. That's why... When we try to define things in black and white, like don't drink alcohol, don't play Dungeons and Dragons, right? Those types of things. Unless we know what the purpose of intent is in our lives, or what the purpose of intent is when in that particular situation, it changes the whole dynamic. This is what I'm going to get at. Sin is not about actions. It's not about behavior. It's about your motive. It's about your heart. This is the crux of it. The reason Jesus came and he took the Pharisees down philosophically and theologically is not because of their behaviors. It was because of their intent. Once you begin to get this, then you begin to be able to reconcile what's going to be talked about in John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Sin is a violation of God's purpose. In fact, Robbie Zacharias points out, you cannot define evil without defining purpose. You just can't do it. So when people ask me particular questions, when we did the series in, uh, in, in so, uh, sexuality uh, last, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, last time I preached, um, when we were doing that series, notice that the whole time we're not talking about the individual acts, we're not talking about the individual actions, we're talking about intent, and purpose. And a society begins to sin when they don't understand their intent, their purpose. They don't understand why God did what he did. What's interesting in philosophy, we, I do a, a, a kind of march through philosophy. I teach high schoolers. And my favorite, it takes three, it takes, uh, it's basically six hours of lectures. We just spend on one dude, and that's Aristotle. Aristotle is one of my favorite philosophers. 
Uh, he's a Socratic philosopher, lived many, 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 about the time the book of Daniel was written is when uh, Aristotle uh, came to being. And uh, Aristotle did two amazing things. One, Aristotle deduced from reason and intellect and logic and other things, he deduced there must be a God. In a culture that didn't, but they believed in like many human gods, he deduced there's got to be an all-powerful prime God, prime mover. That's what he called it, prime mover. And the reason he did it that way is because Aristotle began to realize to know something, to know something, how do you know you have knowledge of something? How do you know? Aristotle says you know something when you know the cause of it, what caused it, what its intent was. For example, when you're a brand new baby and you're looking at the, you know, and you're out, your, your mom's, you know, strolling you down Sunnyside, probably running because that's what we do here, not me, I would not run, uh, otherwise an ambulance would be involved. And so, and you're looking up at Sunnyside and you're looking at the houses, a baby looks and just sees square objects, doesn't even know they're square you know, doesn't know anything. But you, you know those are houses. The reason you know they're houses is because you know that people intended to build those so you can live in them. When you see the big green circle with a weird-looking woman in it, you know the intent of that is to give you caffeine. That's why it's called Starbucks. You know because you know the intent of it. This is what Aristotle did. We know the cause of something, we know it. This is teleos, this is how we know, purpose. Now what's interesting is Aristotle began to work this deduction back and he realized that at some point there has to be a first cause, a a first primary cause. Something had to cause everything that didn't get caused itself. That's the definition of God. And he called that the final cause. It's weird he called it the final cause because This guy, whoever this is, this prime mover, he's the one that caused all causes. He's the final cause of everything. He's the prime mover. But see, even Aristotle says you can't understand something unless you understand its intent, its purpose, its design. This is the big reason why we walk around in the world today and we watch the news and people are so confused about who they are. They're confused about their gender. They're confused about why they're here Some people think we should just live for women's rights, some for men's rights. I don't see many men doing that, but anyway, we're just not brave enough. But we are confused about our purpose because we have lost our prime mover. And Aristotle figured this out. He didn't have the scripture. He didn't have any of these things that we have, any revelation. He just figured it out by thinking it through. And he is such an amazing philosopher um, that I make my kids actually read volumes of his material. They hate it. I love it. But he is smart. And he understands in order to define what is right and wrong, you must understand its intent. Whoops, my notes like cut in half. All right, let's move on. Dear children, he continues, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does that is right. Uh, The one who does what is right is righteous. Okay, stop for a second. What's the word righteous mean? Let's not just read scripture and assume we all know what the words are. Many of you in here, I'm convinced, didn't even know what sin was until about 30 seconds ago, and in about 10 minutes, you're going to forget. 
So I'll just remind you for the next three weeks. Righteousness is the state of being right. You're right. You're, you're justified. You're righteous. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness isn't about doing things, okay? Righteousness means that you are right. It, that's who you are. It's the very character. It's the very nature of who you are. Righteousness is like being white or black, man or woman. It's that type of thing. It's a characteristic. It's an attribute that you have no control over. It's who you are. You can't violate that. And so the word he's using here is this, the one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He's talking about Jesus because that's the very nature of Jesus. What he's basically saying is in order to be like Jesus, if you're with him, you've got to understand his nature. His nature is going to reflect on you. It's going to make you righteous. This is the whole purpose of the book of Romans. The one who does what is sinful, who continues in his heart to move in that direction, not a series of behaviors, keep that in mind, it's an attitude of the heart. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's, because God's seed, keep this in mind, remains in them. They cannot go on sinning. Their attitude, their intent, their purpose cannot continue to live against what God designed and intended. That's what it's saying. Notice he uses the analogy of seed. I would say if you want to talk about Christian living and Christian growth and all that, the biggest analogy used all the way in all of Scripture, all the way back in Isaiah we see this, is the idea of a plant. All right? Anyone who's ever watched plants grow is bored. Plants grow slowly. But if you go do something and come back, you see it grew. And what he's basically saying is, you got this seed in you when you became a follower of Jesus. Now, at first, you were probably doing a lot of sinful things. But as it grows in you, as it grows in you, you begin to not have room to do those things. Does that make sense? Because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are. And he's about to define it and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. John is about to, he's really getting detailed here. Notice he doesn't give any particular behaviors. He gives a command of love. And love is a, it's a fascinating word. We have so misused it in our culture and society today. We have attached it to feeling and feeling is, is just fake. Anyone who loves someone because of feeling does not love someone. That is the bottom line. Marriages are crumbling around them because people have lost the feeling. Anyone who's been married more than five years has lost the feeling. Anyone who's been married to me lost it in one year. She told me. I remember we were married nine months, we went on a long walk, and we had our first honest conversation, like, and it was intended. And I remember she goes, being married to you is so hard. And she, I mean, she said it like, so hard. I mean, I'm like, I'm the worst man to ever walk the face of the earth. But that is because she still loved me, and I knew it. 
because it's not based on a feeling. It's your attitude to something. It's your intent. It's your purpose to love that person. That's why we take a vow when we get married. You know, a vow? We don't take a lovey, tingly feeling test to see if it's time to get married. We take a vow. My wife and I, we were really, um, we had a great engagement. Lasted all of about three weeks. Um, not really. We were engaged for six months. And that's just because she wouldn't let me kiss her until we were engaged. So I got engaged within two weeks of dating her. Okay. Yeah, no intent. Okay. So our first fight, though, we did our honeymoon in, um, we went to, we're Scottish, or at least I claim that. We just did our DNA test, and apparently my ancestors just slept around a lot. Anyway, um, so it's actually pretty sad. But anyway, um, you know, but I do have more Native American than Elizabeth Warren, just so you know. Um, so I had to do it. <laughs> Sorry. She reminds me of one of my aunts, so every time I visit that aunt, I just I have a hard time for about 10 minutes. Anyway. <clears throat> Man, I lost my train of thought. Dude, don't do that. Um, what was Honeymoon. Thank you. So I, <laughs> I claim Scottish. Who, all, who preached Saturday? The whole congregation. It's actually Sunday. I'm so lost. All right. <laughs> I'm Scottish, so we decided to do our honeymoon in um, Europe, uh, in, in Scotland. And um, uh, our first fight, though, was if you've ever driven a car in downtown London, <laughs> and you drive on the opposite side of the road, right, on the opposite side of the car, um, and London streets did not prepare for cars. They were built, you know, when people rode horses. So when you need to make a left turn, the left turns are a bit tight, okay? And so we got in our first fight while my wife is navigating. And I'm really a patient dude. I really am. No, I'm not. <laughs> I just want to see if someone laughed out loud first. It, it was a bad fight. And we had, we had literally been, and now I blamed it. I said, hon, it's, it's just been a long night. We've had a fly here. But, uh, you know, and so there's a lot of forgiveness. But it was during that, that honeymoon that I realized that we love each other not because of our feelings for one another, but because of our intent. And I believe to this day that I am called to love Christy no matter what. And I believe she is called to love me no matter what. That's the bottom line. You cannot understand what is right and wrong unless you understand its purpose, its intent. Now, there's four things that all uh, mankind needs to know to understand what they believe or their worldview. Um, uh, there's different categories, but these are the four I like. We have to understand where we came from, origin. We have to understand why we're here, uh, meaning, our identity, our purpose. We have to understand morality, what's good and evil. The number one source of debate in public life in America and around the world, by the way, is morality and destiny, where are we going? Every human being at its very core wants to answer these four questions. What's interesting is in 1 John, he answers the first of those questions, uh, uh, the second of those questions, what our identity, what our purpose is, he calls us children of God. And because of that, because we're children of God, in light of that truth, and we were made children of God because of the cross and grace, but now we are children of God, now we need to live according to that purpose. We need to live according to that intent. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. By the way, that includes death. How many of you think death is really, well, I won't even ask because if someone raises their hand, someone needs counseling. How many of you hate death? Me. You can raise your hand. You're not going to counseling for that one. Death is ugly. It's horrible. I hate doing funerals. I hate them. You know, I do. And one day I realized when I was reading the New Testament, especially Paul's writing in Corinthians, I realized that death is the enemy, the ultimate enemy of God. I mean, think about that. That's why Jesus came and said, I came to bring life. And when Jesus came and destroyed it, death is gone. See, death is gone. Our destiny, we have eternal life. It says that in John. Our identity is we are children of God. Don't go on living a moral, an immoral life. Live within that purpose. In one foul swoop, he answers all of the questions about who we are, where we came from, what our meaning and our purpose is, our identity, morality, and where we're going. I like what Ben said last week. He reminds you, it's not that we're going to die and then live eternal life. We are living eternal life now. Living eternal life. I was on the plane flying home, and uh, Tom had asked me to watch a movie um, so I watched one movie on the plane, and that's only because I was dying. I was sick, so I passed out for the rest of the 20 hours home. Um, <clears throat> but I watched Free Solo. That dude is fearless. He, like, uh, he climbed uh, El Capitan straight up a rock face without any ropes. And I thought to myself, that guy actually lives like he's never going to die. And then I thought to myself, what would it be like if we had that attitude? Nothing could take us. We're living forever. That's the truth. That's the purpose. Let's keep going. For this message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, he's going to the Old Testament here, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters. Notice he's identifying his fellowship here, brothers and sisters. This is important because he's going to give a command to love his brothers and sisters. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters. If the world hates you, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Notice that. Notice the reason we moved from death to life. He doesn't say because Jesus died on the cross. That's interesting. It's implied. It's there. It's all in. It's before this. He stated at the beginning in, in chapter one, but he's saying, but the reason we pass from there is because we love one another. Do you begin to get the idea that loving our brothers and sisters is an important piece of following Jesus? He actually called it when he said, what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? He says, well, number one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But number two is love your neighbor as yourself. Love your brothers, love the people around you. That's what he's getting at here. Anyone who does not love remains in death. I have a, a statement. I believe this is so true. But to be unloving is to, to be dead. That is death. Because what love does is it brings relationship. We desire relationship. We're designed for relationship. And you know that... Uh, uh, so he talks about Cain, he talks about this, anyone who does not love remains in death, anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. 
Let's keep going. Let's go back to Genesis. Let's look at the Cain and Abel story real quickly, okay? I have 12 minutes. We're, gonna, we're moving. All right, this is why I didn't show any silly pictures. Okay. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, I'm in Genesis chapter 4, by the way. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord, okay? And Abel also brought offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now, just a couple quick notes. It's not about the offering in this story, okay? Uh, I uh, Old Testament is my, uh, uh, what I studied in school, love the Old Testament, and really what they're going to get at, there's an implication here, it's about the attitude in which Cain and Abel brought it, okay? So it's about what's going on in here. It's implied in the story, we don't have time to, decon- I don't have time to show you all that, but just trust me. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you w- will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out in the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then we keep going. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Love that. Listen to uh, Cain's response. It's that smart aleck response, and now that I'm a father of six, it happens all the time in our household, and I wish I were God, because I would, like, let the lightning go. No, just kidding. Okay. I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? What a smart aleck response. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother, brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Remember, death is the enemy of God, the ultimate enemy of God. Keep this in mind. Now you are under a curse driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield crops for you. Keep in mind, he's a farmer. This is bad news. There is no Winco, there is no Fred Meyer down the road to buy your food from. This is not good. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. I am no farmer, but if you have to wander around, I don't think you can farm very well. Remember, plants don't grow very fast. Listen to Cain's response. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. Notice his Fear is not that, it's that he will not be near the Lord anymore. I will be a restless wanderer on the land, on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Redemption. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out, to the Lord, went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is a fascinating passage in the Old Testament. I actually, we do a study in the Old Testament where we show you the first several stories in the Old Testament, major stories, and we show you how God worked grace. Because remember, the punishment for something like murder should have been death. Cain pleads his case and the Lord has, Yahweh has compassion on him and says, no one can touch this man. 
It is a fascinating story, and this is the one that John quotes. Cain clearly did something evil. His brother was there. The intent of that relationship was them to love one another, and more importantly, to love God together. Cain failed to love God and failed to love his brother, and the punishment was death. I am convinced that when you don't love someone, it's worse than killing them. This is a consistent theme in the Scripture. People aren't dying because God's a vengeful God. People are dying because people are doing deathly things. That's the bottom line. This reminds me of the story three older women were discussing the problems that come from getting older. One said, sometimes I catch myself with a jar of mayonnaise in my hand, standing in front of the refrigerator, and I cannot remember if I need to make the sandwich or put the jar of mayonnaise back, right? The second woman chimed in, yes, sometimes I find myself on the landing of the stairs and cannot remember whether I was on my way up or on my way down. The third one responded, well, I'm so glad I don't have that problem, knock on wood. As she wrapped her knuckles on the table, she told them, ah, that must be the door, I will get it. When we were in Israel, and uh, um, we were watching the just, and this is just the Christian church leadership interacting with one another, we heard story after story after story, and this is mainly, I'm not picking on any denomination or anything, but, uh, so I'm not going to tell you what denominations this were, but the infighting between the denominations in Israel is pretty bad pretty bad. And even the way some of the denominational leaders treated the tourists that are coming, and I understand tourists can get on your, on your nerves real quick, but it was very unloving. Um, we got, we personally, we got yelled at quite uh, a couple times, but I was, I overall, I left where the church, the, the old church was and I, and I said to myself, and I believe this is true, and I don't, you know, I, I, there, we met some exceptional individuals, by the way, they didn't fit this mold, so I don't want to make a sweeping statement. But I fundamentally, I left, I said, they care more about their things than they care about people. And then I'm reading John in my room, and I'm like, oh my word, Lord. They don't realize, they're the, the lady that doesn't realize she's got a problem, and she hears the wood, and she's like, goes and answers the door. See, John put this in here so we would remember, fundamentally, if you wonder if you're a follower of Jesus, he's like, do you love people? Do you love your brothers and sisters? And that's, that's a hard question. It must fundamentally drive who we are. Continuing on, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's huge. I mean, think about this for a minute. This is what he's saying. Give your life up for your brother and sister. Not, and it doesn't mean maybe physically. Because he's going to go on and he's going to explain this. It means your brothers and sisters, the people that we ignore on a daily basis because we're just too busy, should be on the forefront of our mind and we should be intentionally trying to love all the time. 
If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother and sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? He's asking that question. It's a rhetorical question, but it's true. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our heart, and he, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we keep His commands and do what He pleases. What he's basically saying here is like, hey, if you're good, if you're following God, you're loving your brother and sister, your prayer life is going to be outrageous. That's what it means. And I can truly attest to this part myself. There is, I remember there's a clear time where I was preaching and I was ministering and stuff and I didn't really love people. And then there became a time where I began to really love people. And I saw my prayer life go from, uh, you know, code Bravo to code Zebra in like no time. It was, I mean, to the point where I would just do things just to see, <laughs> you know, like it was weird. And it is true God is always speaking. I, had a, I took my kid, this is how crazy it is. I took my kid to a museum over on the east side when I, uh, just yesterday, it was uh, on the west side, sorry. It was called, it's called the Rock and Mineral Museum. If you've never been there, it's really cool. Uh, but I went to this Rock and Mineral Museum. And you know, they're like, the earth is 4.3 billion years old. And I'm like, you're 4.3 billion years crazy. But anyway, um, I, and I'm not an old earth, you know, I'm an, actually an old earther guy, so, but anyway, I, I think they're just taking some lob guesses. But I remember I was driving home, I'm like, Lord, would you speak somehow and just let me, remind me that, the, that you're the one behind the earth? And this morning at men's group, I showed up, and guess what? Paul, uh, Paul had up on screen, rock of ages, how old, is, how old is the earth for real? All the time that happens to me. Now, you might, like, that's just a coincidence. I don't believe in coincidences, fools. You're here breathing right now, listening to my message. That ain't no coincidence. I don't believe in that. God is working, always working. Let's skip that next slide because I was going to show you the NASB, but we don't have time. I got one minute and 38 seconds. Otherwise, something happens. I don't know, but whatever. So the next three, we got two more weeks after this, and this is what we're going to be talking about. We're going to talk about, and I'm, I show you, I show, I've shown you a diagram a couple of times. Um, many, many people have asked for that diagram since I sh uh, have shown it. So for the next three weeks, this week, next week, and the week after, I, we're going to walk through this diagram with some intensity, okay? But here's the difference. Here's the two types of people you can be. There's actually three types. There's the person who just, like, doesn't do anything. They're, they just, like, you know what? I do not care about God. I don't care. I'm going to live how I want to live. All right? And there's a few of those people out there. Actually, there's a lot of those people out there. Okay? Type two person is, like, I want to be a religious dude. I'm going to make my list, and I'm going to discipline myself, and I'm going to keep that. I'm going to pray every day, which just means I'm going to speak to the air. We'll get to that. Um, I'm going to read my scripture. I'm going to follow all these rules. I'm going to go and I'm going to put on special clothes and I'm going to look pious. I'm going to have a bunch of behaviors. That's type two. And type three is the person who says, I can't do it. But his grace was sufficient. And he's beginning to change me in his spirit. 
and I'm just going to naturally begin to walk in the light. Yeah, I want to be challenged. I'm going to read the scripture. I want to be challenged. But I'm not going to do this because I have to. I'm going to do this because I want to. That's a big difference. That is a defining difference between doing something in a sinful way and in a righteous way. Believe me, I just came from the land where the three major religions consider Jerusalem one of the holiest sites in their faith. And they were all doing stuff. It was Ramadan. The reason I'm not Muslim, among many reasons, is I will not not eat for a month. That'd be dumb. I'd be angry. But we saw all kinds of interesting, crazy things that were all done because they're trying to perform to get something. Instead of just being the child of God who has his dad's glaze, gaze on him. And it is perfect. And what I do is reaction to that. That's what it is. So we're going to talk about this model. It's called the left turn, right turn model. It was introduced to me by the gentleman who discipled me for many, many, many years. And he gave me permission years ago to kind of retweak it and add to it. Left turn is focused on sin. It's, be, it's a behavior-focused religion, and here's what it is. We have some type of struggle or experience. That's supposed to be the middle. But we have a struggle or experience, and we read the Scripture, and we go, you know what? What the Scripture says, love your brother and sister, is not in alignment with how I'm going to live, how I'm supposed to live. I don't do that. So I want to begin to love my brother and sister, and there's two ways you can handle that. One is the left turn. You're like, I am going to discipline myself to love my brother and sister. Good luck. Here's what, this is fundamentally what happens in all relationships. This is what happens. Okay, things are great. Got the honeymoon phase. Everything's good. Then someone does something wrong. They violate the relationship somehow. Who knows? Whatever. They diss you. And then you have two possible attitudes, right? You can forgive them. That's what the scripture says to do. And forgiveness is like a full forgiveness. This is not coming up again. Or you can retaliate. Which, by the way, you're justified to do. But here's what happens. You retaliate, they retaliate, they retaliate, and now you got war. That's exact, that's human history right there. I teach history. That's it. You mess with someone's ego, mess with his family, mess with his mama. He's going down. And Jesus says, no, you're going down. So you can self-discipline yourself, but then all you're going to be doing is fighting the flesh. And when you fight the flesh, there's only two possible outcomes, and both of them are wrong. Both of them are not right. Here are the two possible outcomes. Pride, because you beat it. You loved them. Woohoo! I loved them. No, you didn't. You think you love them. Anyway. Or shame. Man, I did not. Oh, major fail. I did not love them. Neither one of those are the attitude of the scripture. Then there's the right, uh, the right turn, and the right turn is focused on him. It's a relationally focused re- uh, religion, okay? It's relationally focused. By the way, if you look at why a lot of people reject Christianity, it's not because of our arguments. It's not because of our worldview, because we have a very sound worldview. 
it's because they didn't see people doing what they thought they should see whenever they were following Jesus. And I would say, yeah, you're right. But ultimately, all people, if you look at the hippie movement, it's a relationally focused movement. They want relationship. People do not want to be alone. We're designed not to be. And here is the, the uh, right turn. You, you have that struggle experience, you look at scriptural truth, and you say, this does not align, but guess what? I am not, I can't do it on my own. I'm going to just humbly come and say, Lord, this doesn't align. I don't do this. I can't do anything about it. Will you take over? His grace is sufficient. It says that over and over. He'll take care of it. And you just bring it to him and lay it at his feet. The Holy Spirit begins to move. You begin to begin to experience self-control. And you give glory back to Jesus because you had nothing to do with it. This is a person who is living righteously. Now I'm going to ask you a question. This is your first action question. If I were to make copies of this, detailed who would want one? Because if we see them laying around here, I feel like a failure. So raise your hand if you would like a copy of this in the next couple of weeks. Okay, so I will make five copies. <laughs> so I want you to notice, though, what surrounds this whole thing. You cannot live this model. I am convinced you cannot live humbly if you do not live in community. How do you know you're being humble? Well, when you have a struggle or experience, my first question if you want to know what humility is, hey, did you share that with anybody? Did you share that experience or struggle with anybody? Because if you didn't, pretty sure you're making the left turn right out of the gate. You're like, I got this. You, you don't got nothing. I promise. If I wanted to be a counselor, I'd have a full-time double job because you don't got nothing. You like all the, am I bugging any English teachers today? I hope so. I love you, though. Quit being sarcastic. Yes, sir. All right. <laughs> community. Humility involves community. Humility involves community. When we confess our sins to one another, dude, I've got this struggle. Can you help me? I've got four brothers. One of them doesn't even live here in, in the state anymore. Four brothers that I share my deepest, darkest secrets with and my wife. That's my community. I never take anything on my own. If you're taking it on your own and you think you got it, pride, just pride right there, boom, pride. What I want to talk about the next three weeks is we're going to look at 1 John. We want to align our lives with the Scripture. We want to follow our Jesus because we will not die. Are you ready? Yes. Let's do this. Right here, we're going to talk about that. So if you want a copy, we'll get you a copy. It'll be fill in the blank and all kinds of fun. So bring your pen, bring your Bible. Let's party. <laughs> what a dork. That's me. Let's pray right now. And then we're going to take communion. And I want you to think about relationship for just a second as we get ready to take communion. Just bow your heads. I'm not praying yet. I'm talking but let's not be distracted. I want you to grab, if you're next to your loved one, I want you to hold their hand. This is merely a symbolic gesture 
of the relationship you have with this person. It's interesting, when you hold someone's hand, you temporarily become kind of like with them. You're unified. And the communion is God's message of unification, of communion, of oneness with Him. And so you're about to do something. It's interesting because he, he, he does this and he, he says these words. Jesus replied, I'm sorry, then he said, uh, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had, it, had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. <laughs> then he took the cup And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, what happened in this amazing time, by the way, this is Passover. You know, one of the great apologetics, I always ask my Jewish friends, I'm like, dude, you guys crucified him on Passover and, and, I, and the Jews didn't actually crucify him. The whole world crucified him. The Jews were just the ones who carried it out with the Romans. But you, you did it. They did it on Passover. The final Passover, the final lamb was there and it happened. Boom. He died on Passover day. And just before that, they're doing the Passover. They're doing this meal together. They're preparing for the Passover. And this communion, this communion is about being in relationship with God. Eat the bread. This is my flesh. I'm going to be in you, is what he's saying. I'm coming. The Spirit of God is coming into you, and you are going to be my children. You're going to be the children of the Father God. You're going to be the children of God. How? Because the blood. Drink this and remember the blood. This is what's happening. So as you take communion today, and we have a gluten-free station back there for those with uh, allergies. And if you don't have an allergy, you can still do gluten-free. It's okay. We have other stations here. I want you to go, and you're going to take this, and you're going to take, take the, it's grape juice. We don't do wine here. I'm sorry. And you're going to take the bread. And I want you to remember as you take it, you're becoming in relationship with Jesus. You're the child of God. That's what we're going to do right now. This is communion. Let's pray. Father God, may we dedicate our whole lives chasing you, following you, and learning what it means to love you because you love us and loving the people around us in such a way they see your face. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.